Uh, all right, let's do this. It is Sunday night, and this is the Getting Off Topic podcast. This is Tony. This is Todd. This is Byron. And this is Rockwell. Aww. Aww the doggo. Goodest doggo. What, uh, what breed is that? Um, good doggo breed. Okay. It's, for <laughs> I don't, it's my sister's dog, so I don't know. Oh, okay. I just okay. know that he's very fast. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Show Meg the doggo. She didn't see the doggo. I saw the doggo. He's so cute. Oh, doggo. I love you. Official podcast uh, mascot now. It's official. <laughs> uh, it is a very special episode this week of the Getting Off Topic podcast. Uh, this is the start of our special run, Podcast Impossible. Uh, <laughs> this is the 25th anniversary of the Mission Impossible franchise, which I'd like to say that... Uh, well, the movie franchise. The movie franchise, yes. Yeah. Not the original series, but yes. Um, uh, 25 years ago this month, actually, the month of May. So for the rest of May, these final three weeks, uh, we're going to be deep diving in a full rewatch, uh, all six movies. Um, I would like to say that we planned that because of the anniversary, but funny enough, I didn't know that was it, nope. it was actually the 20th anniversary. That's well, the th- there why. is the new movie coming out, you know, in a in a few months. So yeah, and they're starting. I, I would have picked a better 25th anniversary to uh, celebrate, and that would have been uh, Twister. <laughs> hey, we can <laughs> still do Twister. We can do that next. Yeah, but you know, the funny thing is, yeah, Byron sent me an article with some trivia and stuff after the fact. I didn't know until after we decided to do this that it was the 25th anniversary. The whole reason this came up was because Todd was cleaning out his apartment and we were laughing at his CD collection, including the MI2 soundtrack. So, <laughs> so what we're all saying is that this entire project all came to be because of our collective adoration for the Mission, Into, Mission Impossible 2 soundtrack. <laughs> Featuring such hits as um, Take a Look Around by Limp Biscuit," And I Disappear from Metallica. <laughs> so, okay, real quick. Um, one, just this moment right here is while I was watching the second movie, I realized where they got the, the, the phrase, take a look around. The okay. Australian guy says it as soon as they, they touch down in us you know at his like farm thing he says hey take a look around and i was like wait oh, that's the name of the fucking are you kidding limp biscuit that... named their stupid fucking song after the most throwaway line in the goddamn movie i'm a throwaway character jesus <laughs> yeah. I, I tuned out every time that character spoke because he was so fucking forgettable <laughs> Okay, we're we're jumping ahead. Uh, we'll, oh, yeah, we'll get yeah. to, we will get to the movies. <laughs> uh, anyways, it, it just it just perfectly encapsulates everything that can be said about Mission Possible Two. You know, as a brief primer before we jump into it. You know, absolutely. Uh, well, beyond that, how was everybody's week? What what you guys up to? Uh, it's getting real busy at my uh, cidery um, because it's like in the mid eighties here in Portland right now. So. Is that is that the official name? Like when it's a, a house of cider as opposed to a brewery, cidery. it's a, a cidery. Mm-hmm. Huh. I never knew. The more well, technically you know, a cider house, 
because we have more than just our own taps and we have a large selection of taps. We have over 50 taps available hmm. uh, or not over. Actually, we have exactly 50 taps available. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, because we're a cider, we offer a lot of other guest taps. It's technically a cider house. But yeah. <clears throat> do the Is cider it house. Exclusive rules? cider or do you also have various beers uh, on tap as every, well? So uh, Schilling Cider House Portland um, which is the Portland extension of a Seattle company, um, is 100% gluten-free. Everything that we serve inside of our restaurant is gluten-free. So that means no yeast, or I'm sorry, no uh, wheat anywhere on site. So no, we don't have any beer. It's only cider. Um, we technically do have two beers in cans from local Portland breweries, but that's literally for unreasonable people who are like, I'm sorry, I won't drink cider. <laughs> that's when you say, get the fuck out. Honestly, that's when you say, usually, why did you enter a cidery then? 90, 95% of the time, the people that order them are actually like very obnoxious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Uh. Todd, you, you've got uh, a glow about you. Uh, is there something that you're staring at at the moment? <laughs> a monitor, I'm, perhaps? <laughs> I'm currently staring at the uh, the bridge of the N7 Normandy right now. What? Yeah. I'm finally uh, playing through, for the first time ever in any version, uh, the Mass Effect trilogy. Yes. So Legendary oh, edition. Trilogy, trilogy it is. And then other than that, uh, this week was the first time I left my apartment in any extended fashion. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah, I went to a Dodger game and I was sitting amongst amongst the public for the first time in forever. Very nice. I will have to say that uh, I'm going to miss when the, uh, the uh, socially distanced seating goes away because I know it's probably going to go away soon. <laughs> Oh, it was so fucking nice to be able to sit in my own seat and not have to worry about like elbowing people next to me or people, people like climbing on top over of me. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It I've been was wondering so about that. Nice. I've been wondering about that going back to like theaters, like uh, being. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know how much they're enforcing it at this point. I guess it depends on on the theater company, but um, yeah, it would be. I, it seems like it would be the prime time right now. If you're gonna go watch a movie and uh, and not be bothered by crowds around you, but. well, there's still capacity enforcements for indoor stuff, so like they can't. Ha they I think for theaters they're supposed to be at like a thirty or a forty percent capacity. So I mean, there's guaranteed you're gonna have seats spreading out between groups of people and single seat uh, sitters. Cool. Uh, how is that uh, that Mass Effect? Uh, well, you're playing the first game right now. How, how is that yes. Legendary Edition playing? How's it? Uh, how's it looking? How's it feeling? Um, I haven't had any uh, crash to desktops. I only had one. Like it's a pretty bug. impressive port, honestly. When it comes to the uh, uh, performance and yeah, bugs, um, there are no bugs. I have ran into zero bugs whatsoever. I, I ran into two <clears throat> so far. One, my character got stuck on like a rock. And I just couldn't do fucking anything. <laughs> See, like, oops, that used to happen all the fucking time. <laughs> <laughs> but 
Like I, I literally couldn't. I don't remember how I how I forced it to get off the rock. Like I tried changing weapons. I tried going to the menu. Something I did like eventually unlocked it. But uh, that yeah. was the one bug. And then I encountered like a big massive frame drop on one of like the colony. Like I just went to one of the colony or one of the like just a random planet random planet where you go to uh, go on the mako and go around collecting resources and and do like a minor side mission mm-hmm. and uh i had massive frame drops like Weird. massive frame drops mm-hmm. interesting yeah other than that it's been pretty smooth looks nice the facial animations are not incredibly weird uh <laughs> you know i will say actually nice. uh, i I'm going to say, I think that's actually the thing that sticks out the most of any element of the game ah. whatsoever is I think the, the facial animations are ancient. <laughs> oh, well, it is, a, it is still a facelift on a 10-year-old game. Uh, 10 well, or... Mass Effect 1 came out in 2007. So, oh. yeah. 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 I was trying to move the camera to uh, so fourteen my, years old, <laughs> my Fem Shep character, but uh, sh- the cord is not long enough. Gotta love Jennifer Hale. Yep. Yeah, Brad. and uh, the voice acting—I can't believe how good the voice acting is for the most part. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely the voice acting is like it's probably the best voice acted game of its generation. I think. Yeah, like it's even the t- side characters are are pretty. Like the like NPCs, like the random, like you only talk to them once or twice in the entire game, and they're still pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Todd texted me this morning at about eight a.m. with no context whatsoever, <laughs> just out of the blue, like, "Hey, is Seth Green the pilot? <laughs> like, what the <laughs> hell are you talking about? What?" Then he says, "Like, oh, I'm playing Mass Effect for the first time." I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, Joker, the pilot. He's yep, Seth Green. Yeah. Oh, wait till you get to number two. Uh, Two's got some great. uh, The well, even the one side characters at the point that he's in right now, he's already heard Marina Sirtis from Star Trek. Right. Yeah. I personally, I'm a fan. As far as like your crew, your team that you build, um, uh, number two is the favorite for me. Uh, Well, actually, it's hard. Hard call between two and three. But anyway, whatever. Um, Meg and I this uh, past weekend went on our little camping trip, our little uh, desert trip out to Joshua Joshua Tree. How, uh, how did how was that? That Saw was super fun. Uh, even though my face got pretty burnt, <laughs> I remembered. Oh yeah, I uh, I need SPF one million. Apparently, mm-hmm. if I'm in the sun more than like 15 minutes. Um, but it was nice. It was a beautiful, glorious desert, like piece. It was, uh, the whole, uh, all the campsites were booked at that, uh, Black Rock campground. So eventually more people came and it was just like, oh, this isn't as isolated as we hoped. It kind of felt like, oh, no. oh we just kind of like, you know, went past I a few mean, residential neighborhoods, drove a little further and then just parked and just kind what of. Was the, I mean, when was the last time? you went camping and it wasn't crazy busy. Well, that's the thing. Uh, Meg and I have never been camping in our adult lives. Like ever. Really? Like the last time that I oh. like even did any sort of like somewhat camping thing 
was i'm not even sure if you were there i was there i was gonna say like wait was that time that we went when we were like 19 yeah that lake uh out off of uh, yeah state eight and And we went with like also don't forget camping is like one of the og social distancing hobbies in in existence so that was like one of the the things that stayed what we're still doing yeah yeah Oh yeah, yeah, and like this, uh, especially last last summer, like camping supplies were flying out the door. It was like camping supplies and uh, exercise equipment for home, um, bicycles. I mean, there were there was like six months where I couldn't buy a pair of weights. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> real selling them for like crazy prices online. Um, but yeah, yeah, it was nice. Uh, you know, we just pitched up a tent in the dirt, um, figured out all the camping basics for ourselves, and. Uh, Meg made some. Meg uh, gets all the credit for the pyrotechnics on this camping trip. <laughs> like I kind of started to start the fire, and then she just kind of did the, uh, as she described it. You know, when you had a school project and you saw that everybody else was kind of floundering at doing the work, so then you just took over and did all the work yourself. Yeah, she was. Uh, she took over the group project for the fire. Made some little. She was the fire starter. Made some uh, little vegan dogs um, and as, some. As I put it, I activated my my butch side <laughs> and uh, <laughs> took over. Well, I mean, you did handle that wood pretty oh. well. Um, and <laughs> Byron's face. <laughs> uh, oh, and then I had to live with that for like three years, Byron. <laughs> so. And then uh, Meg broke out the s'mores. There's the s'more, you know, stuff that she got with these. Hey, un- I got I got these marshmallows that said campfire on the back because they were like the size of your fist. So I'm like, these are going to be perfect because we're actually taking them to a campground. These were like giant mutant fucking <laughs> marshmallows. Like she she killed. She used in the entire like Stay Puffs. The entire Mr. Stay Puff is what she bought. Okay, yeah. Well done, the Toxic Avenger of s'mores. Yeah. <laughs> so like once you once you melted them and then you put them on the rest of your like graham cracker and, and little thing of chocolate like the s'more just completely took over, took over like the yeah. fucking blob <laughs> just Man, if someone asks you if you were a god you say yes yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah they were pretty ridiculous like yeah. i will not get those again because they were just it was too much yeah anyway yeah so oh, we kind of made ourselves sick on that but genuinely it was it was pure bliss to just sit there like once we got the tent up and everything we just chilled out and got our little camping chairs there we just kind of sat and like for a second like i thought like we were gonna like meg was gonna start listening to her audiobook and we were just like passing the time until it'd be later you know at night <laughs> we start doing the campfire and food and stuff and we started trying that. Like I started listening to podcasts. And then after a few minutes, we just stopped and we just like sat there and just like listened to the quiet. And it was exactly what we needed. It was super nice. Yeah. Um, I think they. Uh, so I'm not sure if Joshua Tree is considered a clear skies. Uh, dark sky. Uh, yeah, or dark skies. Well, here's the yeah. thing. There. Joshua Tree is considered a dark sky area. However, where our campsite was, was right on like the edge of the Joshua Tree National Park. So, so it's too close to, to like yeah, 29 Palms. You have Palms. to go in. 
Yes. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't quite too far. So I used to live near that entrance, so I know exactly where you're talking about. And then at the yeah. same time, I overheard one of the other camp guys saying that uh, from that location, you can actually see the Milky Way. Um, however, at that time of year, we would have had to wait till about 1130 to midnight to be able to see it, which we had already gone to bed by 10 at that point. Yeah. And also... Well, because it, morning comes it, pretty soon there. Like, yeah. I mean, like... Yeah, sun woke us up at like six. And at the same <laughs> yeah. time, the guy said that again, this time of year, you wouldn't really get a very nice view of it, anyways. So yeah, we saw some stars. I mean, we like the, the yeah, the Dipper was no. Like I mean, right you can you can see a lot of stars. I just wasn't sure if it was officially considered a dark skies. Yeah. It can be, but not where we were. Yeah, it's, it wasn't like that. Uh, it wasn't that you can see every single star in the sky moment like we saw that. Reservation pit stuff we talked about. So uh, speaking it's the of closest to a dark si sky location that you can get in Southern California. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Uh, so speaking of listening to podcasts last week uh, or audiobooks, that is. Um, uh, so I got my second shot on Monday or on last Sunday, and uh, about the 12, 12 hours later, I started having a really intense reaction. And then about six to eight hours after that, I had a 17 hour long fever um, that was really, really intense and just a horrible experience, Super uh, really fun. bad headache. But for about four or five hours, I was hallucinating. But uh, prior to that, I had put on the Darth Plagueis audiobook um, that I had started a couple of years ago. And I was just like, oh, this would be a great time to listen to it. <laughs> um and so, uh, you know, Darth Plagueis is talking about smashing his uh, his his Sith master's head with a rock, and like, uh, you know, talking about his machinations for like ruling the galaxy. And I'm like tripping balls here, you know. Um, it was, you know, he's talking about like how he's evil and you know, man manufacturing society. And I was just like, oh, this is too much. <laughs> yeah. The the Darth Plagueis novel is 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 a little more political at the beginning, and it's it really takes... really good though. I mean, yeah, it, it is. It's really good. It's but... probably the best written Star Wars book I've ever read in terms of like the quality of the writing and. Um, yeah, Excuse me, good. Thrawn trilogy. Yeah, I stand by what I said. Okay, <laughs> I said what I said. Yeah, still though. 17 hour fever that's that's when you want some Thrawn low... was great when i was 12 years old <laughs> but darth plagueis is a little bit more nuanced for someone in their 30s you know all right yeah when you're when you're fighting the the crazy fever dreams maybe some more low stakes are, are you know <laughs> you want like the home renovation shows or something or like uh i mean it did help me like visualize the the uh, the the scenery really well <laughs> because <laughs> everything was like purple and green you know uh all right guys well uh we have some movies to talk about but first uh run through some quick headlines shoot yeah there was a not too much this week but uh did you guys catch that uh trailer for venom let there be I Meg and I personally, we, we really enjoyed that that first Venom movie. Like it's, it's not the greatest, but it's it was solid fun. It was definitely fun. <laughs> it was fun, yeah. Um, Woody Harrelson doing his best uh, quiet 
weird serial killer yeah. sort of baby talking voice. Uh, but okay. I, the only reason that I'm like really interested in this movie a lot is uh, it's being directed by um, that guy. <laughs> uh, that damn dirty ape. Um, Is that Matt Reeves? No, Andy Circus. Andy Circus. There you go. Really? Um, yeah. So that's why I'm really interested. I was going to say the, the ghost of Charlton Heston. <laughs> because Andy Circus is a really, really interesting dude. I don't know if you guys know anything about him, but he like started as a classically trained theater actor and mm-hmm. did like thirty, like thirty years of stage acting before he got in, involved in Hollywood. um so i just think he's a really interesting and phenomenal actor i mean look what he did with his like 10 minutes on screen with ulysses claw turned him into like the most interesting character in both of those movies yeah i was Um, so happy when when he came back for um for black panther um it was just like yeah yeah go ahead uh and he's just He's just a really interesting artist. And so I think he's exactly the type of person who could take something as weird and wacky as Venom to let there be carnage mm-hmm. um, and turn it into something uh, a little bit more high concept. Yeah. Though so that's also what I thought about uh, like um, Kenneth Brana and I don't know. <laughs> I, I think uh, what, those were what, diminishing what returns. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the best elements of the Thor movie were not Kenneth Branagh's direction. Let's just say that. <laughs> yeah. Yep, yep. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's coming. I, I didn't even catch the release date for that. Um, and it, 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 it's interesting to see that they're really leaning hard into the comedy this time. Like, yeah. I mean, the first one did as I, well. Um, so and- I still haven't seen the first one. I didn't know up until like, a couple of months ago when somebody made like a Reddit post about it, that it was a fucking comedy. I I had no idea. See, I have to, because it's, there's comedy in it. It's, it's not, I mean, it's a, I don't know. Calling it a comedy would be disingenuous. Right. No. Yeah. It's described as an action comedy. Mm, It may have turned out that way, but like, yeah, it's not what the movie's, was a I feel like was originally intending. Yeah, I think it's just a, a typical like action adventure movie. They say like all the superhero movies ever since like Marvel took over the world, you know, um, like you you could technically describe all of them that way. Like there's jokey jokes in every fucking Iron Man movie and and Guardians especially and yeah, uh, but there were jokey jokes that. in all superhero movies always, except for the Nolan trilogy. The only exception yeah. is the Nolan trilogy. Yeah, but. Pre-MCU, half the time we were just laughing at how bad the comic book movies were. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, think back to the Singer-like movies. Those, there were full of jokes. Yeah, yeah. It's just... It's What'd you the, want? Yellow spandex? Yeah. The general, you know, family-friendly adventure movie. It's always going to have some levity in it. Um, yeah. Again, unless it's a Chris Nolan picture. Uh, September 24th. Then there will be no levity of any sort. Of any sort. <laughs> uh, except for like one offline uh, when uh, when somebody disappears on uh, Bale Batman. Oh, so that's what that feels like. Oh, and this is th- a nice coat. Yeah. <laughs> Who, by the way, is in Mission Impossible 2. 
Oh yeah, that's right. It's the, the old professor dude. Okay. Anyway, uh, yeah, Venom: Let There Be Carnage, September twenty fourth is the release date on that one. Um, in Netflix news, uh, Knives Out two has gotten some pretty heavy hitters for the cast. Catherine, Catherine Hahn. Hahn. I mean, I, 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 I mean, I said it a couple months ago. Like, I think that this is going to be this like turning point for Catherine Hahn, where she's just in absolutely. I mean, she was yeah. already in a lot before. But she's like, gonna be she's in gonna everything start for a getting while. like a list star status. Yeah, people are busting down her door right now. So Catherine Hahn, Dave Batista, Edward Norton, and Janelle Monet all announced this week. You know, I've been thinking, I've been wondering when Edward Norton was gonna make like a big comeback because he's largely been absent from like the 2010s. After, yeah. after Hulk, he pretty much just like disappeared. The last thing I remember him in was a uh, Wes Anderson one. Uh Moon, Moonrise Kingdom? That was go. like eight years ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 2012. Good Lord, was that eight years ago? Jesus yeah. Christ. So, yeah. The last Wes Anderson one I saw was that Isle of Dogs. I'm not sure if he did a voice on there. Yeah, he's in that too. Okay. Um, uh, Netflix also announced, I, I still haven't watched the first one, but I heard good things about it. Uh, Enola Holmes, they're doing a sequel now. Yeah, I, I heard it was really it was, good. I, I, it was I'm okay. I'm definitely going to have to watch it I, I caught a clip of it while my sister was watching it and it looked good so and i like i like both of the i like the whole cast so yeah, I, I watched it. Yeah. yeah henry cavill and and millie bobby brown were obviously the, the the best parts of the movie the plot was okay and it was it was it's obviously a children's movie so it's it's nothing special i think henry cavill is a really interesting person because everything that i've seen him in i've i've actually been very impressed with his his acting ability. He's not just like the big blue boy scout, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, I also like him as Superman. Mm. Cool. All right. Um, Netflix also did release. Uh, so I guess they're going to put out a trailer fairly soon. Cause they released a bunch of stills from their masters of the universe series. Um, yes. and announced the uh, premiere date is July 23rd. Um, it lo- what was the official name of it? It was uh, like Re- Revelations or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, Masters of the Universe Revelations. Revelation, yeah, and they said it's yeah, like, the art looks pretty good. Yeah, I mean, it looks you know just straight up update from Shira the looked, classic characters. Shira looked pretty good too. So I mean, I haven't seen that yet. What's what's the name of the floating guy with the like the like hat? Who looks like a wizard? Don't know. Don't remember. Anyways, he it in the old version he had like an O on his on his shirt and he was like all goofy and now he looks like an eldritch god. <laughs> nice. Oh, um, Mark, Mark Hamill is in Skeletor. Nice. Yes. Yeah. No, that's yeah. I'm I'm just with with this project. I'm not a huge Masters of the Universe fan. I was when I was like four years old, but uh, you know I'm not four years old anymore. Um. <laughs> uh. But I, I'm actually just really happy that Kevin Smith. Because he's been trying to do a project like this for a really long time. Do you remember when he was trying to get that Flash Gordon show off the off the ground? Yeah, he, yeah, he was. He just couldn't yeah. do it, you know. Yeah, I think so this he's is been rare. trying to do something like this for like almost like almost ten years, and this is the first one that's even, actually worked out. Even longer than that, he was he was attached to Ant Man and uh, Ant Man before Edgar Wright was. Wow, like yeah. he's been trying to do a comic book or old cartoon property forever. I mean, yeah. I will say, if you've ever read any of his comics, 
you start to understand why he hasn't really gotten a swing at this stuff because <laughs> he's not actually particularly good at that that mm-hmm. type of thing but i feel like masters of the universe is exactly the right property for it yeah well he's joked for years about like uh he he wouldn't uh, if they offered him a like a marvel movie or something people asked him about that he's like are you fucking crazy like god no like i don't know how to yeah. do that shit like it i would have like Iron Man and Captain America just sitting there like... You guys have, like, read the script of Superman Reborn, right? Like, that shit is a fucking disaster. (laughs) At the same time, when you have, uh, like, a team that's already a well-oiled machine, you talk about, like, his uh, stints doing directing spots on, like, uh, episodes of The Flash and whatnot, um, and Supergirl. Uh, He was, he, he was, like, he, he ran the show well and he said it was easy for him because like they were already a well-oiled machine and he just kind of came in and like was everybody's cheerleader and going like, Oh my God, this is so cool. I get to direct, you know, the flash and Supergirl. So I think if he has a good team with him, he can definitely shine in all these superhero properties and just like bring that, um, that enthusiastic energy to every bit of it. Um, but yeah, maybe not be head writer on it. <laughs> I mean, the, the dude, the, the dude, like his, like, infamously dropped out of vancouver film school and used the money that he was going to spend on film school to make clerks Mm -hmm. and vancouver film school is only a year-long program (laughs) he's he's the guy that you want to go to if you need to squeak out very personable and very good relationship dialogue between characters he's not the guy you want to go to for uh, an immersive story yeah the, he he directed some really great episodes of like supergirl and the flash where it was a lot of the uh you know talk pieces the the b squad or the the uh you know yeah i always liked his flash episodes of, uh, they were all they were always like uh high points of the season yeah there it was uh it was a lot of like he came in when like team flash needed to uh like work out their personal drama mid season, you know, and they, that's where he shines. Um, but I'll tell you what, uh, cartoons, <clears throat> even while you're not still four years old, Byron, you can appreciate these cartoons that are coming from Adult Swim because they have announced three movies in the works. Hell yes. Aquatine Hunger Force, The Venture Brothers, and Metalocalypse. So this will be the second movie for Aqua Teen Hunger Force. Yes, it will. Because uh, I saw the original in theaters. As um, did I. And, uh, you know, honestly, Metalocalypse, uh, I wasn't as into it when it came out. Mm-hmm. I got into it later over the last, like, in the last, like, 10 years. Um, and it's great. It's so much fun. Um, but the star of this one, I think, is the Venture Brothers. Mainly because it didn't get, it didn't get a final season. And they, I thought they were finally coming out with one. Uh, no, it got abruptly canceled. It got canceled. Oh, but, but when it got canceled, the head of um, HBO Max was per, said he, he was a huge fan of that franchise. And so he was sure that they were, there would be some way that they could continue it. Yeah, sure. um, and I think it's really the best possible situation because it always seemed like a movie was sort of the direction that they were going anyways, uh, mainly because uh, Jackson public each season sort of feels like sort of a mini movie in and of itself. And some of the longer episodes feel like movies too. Yeah. So I think it's just, uh, they did, they didn't get a proper ending. They had, they had cliffhangers at the end of season eight, uh, seven. Mm. Um, 
So no, I'm just super stoked. And also I think uh, if this is successful and I sort of predict this with all three is that if these movies are successful, they're going to make more. Yeah. Um, the, the Aqua Teen movie, the first one is so weird. Well, I well, remember I mean, Meg and you... I, we, we would catch, you know, we enjoyed catching like the late night episodes and, you know, I mean, they're quick and easy. There's something to, you know, quickly, you know, watch before you go to bed or something like 12 minutes long. Didn't Mastodon um, do like the theme song or something? I don't remember. I think they did. I actually, yeah. Oh, I remember what they did. So yeah, the, 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 the original show, I think the episodes were like 12 minutes long or something. We went and watched the movie and then we realized, oh, there's a reason why they're 12 minutes long. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> after that, the joke just... It, it, Falls very it, flat. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Well, the no, I remember watching it and being like, this isn't very good, but no. I'm really high, so it seems a lot better. <laughs> the best thing that came out of that movie was the intro yeah. of the film. That was With Mastodon. Mastodon. With Mastodon, yeah. yeah. They yeah. did the, like, let's go out to the lobby parody. Oh, and then that's they start, right. Yeah, it starts out nice and sweet, and then they come in and just start fucking going insane on guitars and drums, and they're so, saying, like, be quiet or we'll rip your fucking faces off. So, funny story, I was <laughs> I working that at the... In front of the movie theater. I was working at the Landmark Hillcrest uh, Cinemas when that movie came out, and we premiered it, and it was the only theater in San Diego County that was showing it at the time. And we had a line around the block of sweaty, like, teenage fanboys yep. <laughs> coming to see that movie. And it was wildly different from the regular clientele of our theater. Uh, and I just remember being very traumatized by, by how just ultra try hard all these fanboys were you had a bunch of carls among you didn't you oh yes oh very <laughs> much so uh, and they were just like quoting the show non-stop in the in the hallways and i was just like oh god i can't believe i watched the same shit as these motherfuckers it was very embarrassing <laughs> hey man come on I- i'm sweaty sure sweaty neckbeards quoting their favorite movies and TV shows. No, we don't know any of those type of people. Yeah, oh, right. whatsoever. Apparently, <laughs> we've never been to any conventions. No, <laughs> fucking nerds. God, I think I've said it on the them. podcast before that. I mean, I, I'm wiser now. I try to be not like you know looking down on other, you know, other forms of geekdom because I know plenty of them would look at us and go like, ugh, fucking morons. But unwashed plebes. I found that my personal like oh startling moment at any conventions and stuff uh, was running into Doctor Who fans because uh, I went heavy, <laughs> I went heavy on Doctor Who for quite some time um, and Ubians, I thought, if you will I thought I loved the shit out of it and then I got kind of scared after uh, after several interactions at Comic Con and WonderCon I'm like oh whoa there's I, I- I'm a Star Trek and Star Wars nerd, and the only nerds that scare me are Hoovians. <laughs> they're just like a whole well, and Bronies too. But... Well, they're also like the OG fandom. Like Doctor Who's been around since 1968. Yeah, <laughs> it's been around a spell. Yeah. Oh, um, 
one more bit of news and another bit of animation news actually oh i have one too also before we get into the last one for you oh, uh cool. i highly recommend uh castlevania their fourth and i think this is the final season came out on friday i so. did hear about that i we watched the first season and that was it and we just got distracted by this stuff and it's been so long i'll have to we watch the whole thing but yeah, definitely watch it. It, it. the The first three seasons are really fucking good. I'm excited to watch the fourth and final. So season. what? What is the other show that the? Because didn't it get announced that the team that's doing the Castlevania anime is working on other well known properties? Uh, they did. They worked on Dota, the Dota anime. Um, is it The Witcher that they're doing next? I think they're also doing The Witcher. I think it's the same team that's doing Castlevania is doing The Witcher. Yeah. I thought they were but doing. The, um... The latest thing that came out that they did was the Dota 2 anime. Mm. Okay. I know Netflix was working on multiple like anime styled shows and I oh, know they're next... doing one for like the uh, MonsterVerse with uh, Kong and uh, Godzilla. Oh, that's right. Netflix that's has a fuck ton of anime. Yeah. Like, Pacific on Rim one, I coming. think, is coming. There's Assassin's that's... Creed anime coming. Pacific Rim actually already came out. Uh, oh, okay. it's, it's on Netflix already. All right. All right. Um, <clears throat> so Rick and Morty is coming back uh june 20th month, right yeah sunday june 20th for season five uh, meg and i saw on our dvr there was something that recorded something new that recorded i was like rick and morty like i know that's not coming back yet like maybe that's a, a rerun that for some reason recorded on the dvr and we played it and it was this little special called rick and morty in the eternal nightmare machine and to our surprise it was like a solid glorious a 15 minute animation that plays out it's just a playthrough of like a rick and morty street brawler uh and yeah no i'm it's crazy animated by paul robertson um animator known for pixel art animation who worked on both the scott pilgrim movie and game oh interesting and he just did a fun little like 15 20 minute animation like a little one-off special like to hype people up for season five and you're just watching that like rick and morty going through a street ball brawler video game it's fucking insane so and, have, and i want this game even though I, it doesn't exist todd have you seen scott pilgrim the movie yeah so everybody everybody here has seen it though. yeah mm-hmm. okay yeah so i was just gonna say like if if anybody wants to go see a movie that's in theaters right now scott pilgrim got pushed into a wide release yeah uh, 10th anniversary from the dolby uh it's not in it's not in Dolby in the wide release, but it went from Dolby only screenings to wide release. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Scott Pilgrim, actually, our uh, Ramona Flowers, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Oh, yeah. I just saw a little teaser. This movie looks rad. Yeah. And there's some stills released again, Netflix. Uh, she's doing a Netflix movie called Kate, where she's uh, some sort of assassin. Assassin. Out in- yeah. I'm a huge fan of hers. She is great. I mean, she like she was so good as Huntress. Yeah. Uh, oh man, I just everything she's in. She also um, Ten Cloverfield Lane. She was fantastic in that. Fucking great. Yeah. She is. I think is, uh, that was one of the most. That was one of the most common things that I heard from like people reviewing um, uh, Birds of Prey. Uh, was her as a standout, and uh, yeah, with this, it looks like she might be kicking off a little action career, which. Good for I'm her. Down. She deserves it. I am down. Yeah. Uh, I think that way, I... people won't just know her for you know Ramona Flowers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Oh, and one last little fun thing. I just found out that uh, Roku, if you have a Roku TV or Roku device, they have absorbed all of Quibi's original content. <laughs> now, why would I care about this? Well, Reno 911. Reno 911. Yep. I can finally watch Reno 911. You know that they were nominated for Emmys for that season, right? Yeah. Second A. Um, I think they won yeah. too. So as of uh, the 20th, this Thursday, you'll be able to watch that new season of Reno for free on uh, Roku's uh, free. That's good because I got like halfway through it when Queeby shut down. (laughs) Did they just like awkwardly refund you like mid-month? Like, we're sorry, we're we're closing up shop. (laughs) Um, No, I did like the free trial just so I could watch Reno 911. Oh, wow. That's cool. Ah. All right. Anything else, guys? Or should we uh, should we get into the main event? No, I think we're good. All right. So, Podcast Impossible Week 1. Woo. Getting dun, off topic, dun, gang. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> this is just the rest dun, of the podcast. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> All right. Getting off topic, gang. Uh, watched 1996's Mission Impossible. Directed uh, by Brian De Palma. Brian De Palma. Untouchables, Brian De Palma. Carrie, Scarface, Blowout. Yep. The one. Uh, who wrote that first one? That, that first one was uh yeah directed by brian de palma story by david coep david Stephen, kep. david kep is that how you pronounce yep. it yep. i've been doing it wrong and steven zellian uh yeah so the second guy is um is uh the star of the movie tom cruise uh, tom, tom cruise. cruise is like personal screenwriter <laughs> <laughs> that <Yep>. one guy <laughs> yeah the guy that we're oh. going to be talking about for like the next 45 minutes to an hour uh, yeah so that he's one a, guy. so he's a scientologist guy with the head <laughs> I, I think you yep you probably hit it on the head there probably half of hollywood is so yeah i didn't realize that uh danny elfman did the uh the first soundtrack well it was originally supposed to be alan silvestri um but he was scrapped about like 20 minutes of soundtrack into the movie and was replaced by Danny Elfman. Oh wow. With like less than a month of production left. Wow. Yeah. All right. So yeah, uh, a little backstory here. In the early 90s, <clears throat> uh Cruz wants to take charge of his career. I mean he always he already had plenty of fucking success, but he He was wasn't really known as an action star though. Yeah. Not I mean, yet. Kind of with like Top Gun sort Top of Top Gun but... eh. Uh, that was yeah, still mostly action than it. it was action yeah exactly yeah. like it's more because he's got a helmet on the whole action. time you know yeah and sweet beach volleyball action <laughs> 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 and eating food uh for sexy times and awkwardly. like awkward homoeroticism uh-huh like a yeah, lot of it like a lot of it <laughs> yeah. It was ahead of its time, really. <laughs> ahead True. of its time. Yeah. I didn't say, like, wrong. I said awkward. Yeah. Hey, get woke, Byron. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, so you know, Tom Cruise wants to take more uh, uh, spearhead of uh, projects for his career to produce and star in. So together with his agent at the time, Paula Wagner, they create Cruise Wagner Productions. 
Uh, and it was around that same time that Tom Cruise finds out that Paramount holds the rights to one of his favorite childhood TV shows, Mission Impossible. So that ended up becoming um, Cruise Wagner Productions' first film. Now, the original show aired in uh, 1966 through 1973. Now, can you guys guess who I owe my, I mean, I don't know, I don't have much, but what bits of 1960s TV knowledge, who I owe that to? Okay. The Sci-Fi Channel. Oh, okay. Because when the Sci-Fi Channel they started, used to air like Batman, nineteen sixty-six. Yeah, they had like two things. They had Mystery Science Theater three thousand, yeah. fucking yeah, and a bunch of old TV properties that they could air for cheap. So, well, not when it first started in like early early nineties. So, yeah, there was. I, I mean, I I watched as a kid, like a little kid. I ended up watching a shitload of The Incredible Hulk show. Yeah, Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno. Um, Wonder Woman uh, 70s, uh, Land of the Giants, which was like oh, yeah. fucking Erwin Allen production that lasted like two seasons <laughs> in the late 60s. Um, but was was pretty like impactful. Yeah. Like it yeah. had a really long legacy. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, and I do recall, I have vague memories, they would occasionally air some Mission Impossible, which is not exactly a sci-fi series, but I mean, I guess he with a little bit with like you know, fancy gadgets and stuff. You kind of fudge it, but it was just another like 60s property that they just kind of threw in there. And they it had fits more in sci-fi than it does on, say, TV land, I think. Maybe, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't remember much from the actual show at all, except for the iconic theme song, of course, composed by Lalo Schifrin. And uh, and then, of course... Well, it had like Martin Landau, Leonard Nimoy, Lee Merriweather. Yeah, like... uh, Peter Graves, the original uh, Jim Phelps. Um, there was also a late 80s revival that brought back some of the original characters. Yeah, yeah, I think Peter Graves came back for that one. Uh, it ran like two seasons, two quick yeah. seasons. Um, now, the uh, music. We were going to talk about the music. Danny Elfman, I thought about this a lot. Um, I I personally think Danny Elfman uh, plays a big role, along with some other composers, for bringing back the full orchestral soundtrack in the 90s. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, the standard 80s action movies, synth, thrillers, synth. like low-budget horrors, like, they yeah. all had, it was super synth. Well, because um, they didn't have a lot of budgets for it back then, like... Yeah, yeah, if you can get away with one guy in a Casio, because that's what you the, do. The budgets of those types of movies had ballooned so much that the only place that they could crush them down was the soundtrack. Yeah, it was only the big, like, studio movies, like John Williams, Alan, Williams, Alan, Alan Silvestri, they were still doing their thing, um... Anything Amblin produced basically was going to have a full orchestral thing. But, but yeah, if you're making like cheap little, uh, you know, buddy cop movie knock, lethal weapon knockoffs and Rambo knockoffs <laughs> for dirt cheap or dirt cheap horror movies, like, yeah, you're going to go with the one guy in the Casio. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so Danny Elfman, thanks to his like constant um, team ups with Tim Burton, which uh, starting with uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, actually. Which I actually remember this, hearing this trivia before. Uh, it might have been an interview with Danny Elfman uh, when Tim Burton approached him just because he liked Oingo Boingo and to to do the soundtrack for Pee Wee's Big Adventure. It's like, are you fucking crazy? Like, I can't do Like, I don't want to do a movie soundtrack. You're nuts. Yeah. But he did. He started playing with orchestra sounds, although he was still more electronic based. But once he got into like Beetlejuice, Batman 89, um, Edward Scissorhands, that's when he really started to shine with a big, God. huge orchestra sound. 
Batman '89 still has the best theme. Fucking, fucking love yeah, that. It really does. It's and a lot of fantastic. the, a lot of the, uh, the soundtrack in this first Mission Impossible movie, to me, like screams uh, Batman Returns, especially like the, the big like brass sections, like when action happens, that da na na na, very kind of like. I will say that in the late '90s, he did end up working on a lot of stuff that uh, he his w- w- talents were largely wasted on. Um, mm. I don't think this is necessarily one of those things, but it's not his most memorable work, mainly because the heavy lifting is being done by the original theme song. Yeah, yeah. And blending that in with the action sequences and the, the tracks for the action sequences, I think it does, even though this movie doesn't do much to tie itself to the original show, um, other than some gimmicky things like, you know, this tape will self-destruct in five seconds and good morning, Mr. Phelps. Well, and also Jim Phelps is, you know, a returning character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think uh, even though they're not trying to go for a retro 60s feel, I think in a way that like that big brassy soundtrack sound does kind of tie it in a way. So, but, yeah, it's not the Brady Bunch movie, but. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, speak- I, I totally get what you're saying. It, 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 it has a, it has a sort of retro throwback feeling, at least the first half of it does. Yeah. Yeah. To it, a it, more simple sort of spy movie. Yeah. Yeah. Mostly like a, a thriller talk piece before it gets into transitions into that bigger blockbuster action stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, in an earlier draft of the script, in fact, the original cast of the show was to be featured in a cameo. They were essentially going to be the team that was wiped out in the beginning, like the original cast, which royally and weirdly enough, them. they all said no. Yeah. So that royally <laughs> pissed off uh, Martin Landau. He hated it and refused to be any part of it. And then later, this, of course, the script was reworked where Jim Phelps ends up being the only returning character as team leader. And, and then when it turns out the twist is, he's the bad guy and betrays everybody that pissed off the original actor, Jim Phelps, uh, who portrayed Jim Phelps, Peter Graves. And uh, he was basically, he said in so many words, he was bummed out. He's like, you know, they could have made any sort of anybody, anybody in the IMF organization be, you know, the turncoat. Like why you know, ruin that character? Like, couldn't you just except have that's, me, like, except, retire on a beach in the beginning? Except or something? that's the whole point of the movie is that, I mean, and this was the big thing in the nineties was, uh, was tweaking boomer nostalgia. That's what all those nineties movies were about. We're taking these, yeah. these 60 sacred cows and twisting them. Yeah. And like being like, well, what if the Brady's came into the nineties where there's AIDS? Yeah. You know, hey, what like... if we had live action Flintstones? <laughs> exactly. Like, and they're talking about like, you know, the Iraq war and it's like, what? <laughs> um, same uh, region of the desert, you know? Um, uh, so Peter Graves, by the way, solid dramatic actor from back in the day but he will forever be ingrained in my childhood brain as captain over from airplane (laughs) (laughs) yep he was one of those he was mostly a serious actor who suddenly decided to take a shot at it like a comedic role he was a fucking natural at it like similar but well i mean he took it to a much wilder degree leslie nielsen who had a whole (laughs) second life yeah Yeah. Yeah. who was also in airplane with peter graves yeah (laughs) But yeah, 
So thank you to the Zucker brothers for turning traditionally dramatic actors into hilarious comedians. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, overall, I mean, okay, you guys can probably already tell as me and Byron are gushing over this first movie. I still love it. I, I really enjoy it. I think it's super solid. It's one of the most solid of the franchise. Yeah, I, I, I really, I, I do enjoy it quite a bit. I will say that um, I saw it in theaters when I was nine years old. Um, and it, I think it's, it was like sort of a turning point for me in terms of seeing movies that were not, didn't have like dinosaurs or like space in them, you know, <laughs> uh, that I was actually like really interested in and intrigued by. Um, yeah. I remember seeing it with, uh, some sort of older person and another kid and just being like totally wowed at how much fun it was not really expecting or having any knowledge that it was like the continuation and literally a sequel to an existing franchise. Um, It's a, I think uh, we owe a lot to the direction with uh, Brian De Palma. I mean, he's, Oh yeah. He, the, you know, suspense thrillers, that's his bread and butter. De Palma has always been like a workhorse director that elevates genre fare to like, to cinemaphile levels yeah it's he he did a good job of balancing that uh the old-fashioned slow burn suspense thriller movie that's mostly like a talk piece but then switches gears rapidly to a more modern blockbuster style action piece and it goes back and forth so i agree that he has both of those elements i don't agree that they or at least in today's standards, I don't think they mesh as well as they did at the time. Okay. Um, though I'm not even sure that they meshed as well at the time as we think now, because I was going back and reading old reviews, and some of the same problems that I had with the movie were some of the same problems that I read reviewers having, having with the movie. Yeah. Um, mainly in that uh, the movie is like really unbalanced. Um, and a lot of the so I, I did like the movie, but I did feel that um, De Palma thought he was making a smarter movie than he actually made. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the script. Yeah. Um, so Sidney Pollock originally was attached to the screenplay. And David Kep, who is, you know, one of the most in- influential screenwriters of the 19, like 80s and 90s. Mm. Um, there's a lot here, but it's very clear that they didn't know how their movie was going to end mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because the third act really falls apart in terms of the narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's a lot of stuff that's going on that feels like spinning plates, but they're not keeping them spinning. Um, the screenwriter, uh, Robert town, I believe his name was the Robert town is actually the guy that I was thinking of. That's, Right. Yeah. Um, the story credits go to David Cap and Stephen Zalian. Uh, but and the, Robert Town is the one who actually wrote the screenplay, and he also wrote and he also wrote Mission Impossible Two as well. And he's actually the guy that I was thinking of. Yeah. Um, that is Tom Cruise's in-house uh, script doctor. Yeah, he was and quoted I, as uh, talking about these first two films, how they kind of wrote around the action pieces that they were working out. Oh, absolutely, um, and that's yeah. really evident. At, like it feels yeah. which is, I, I, to be fair that's uh, similar to how george lucas described uh the early drafts of raiders of the lost ark 
where that was quite a brilliant lightning in a bottle, but I guess this shows that that uh, style of writing doesn't always come out. Yeah, <laughs> but George Lucas is one of the best storytellers on the planet, and Lawrence Kasdan is one of the best screenwriters on the planet. Very true. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, it's not a lesson in do it this way all the time. It's just yeah. you know, you you may get mixed results when you swing for the fences. Like exactly, that. and also that I mean, you're talking about like three of the most talented um, genre filmmakers at the height of their career. So, yeah. Yeah. But uh, Brian De Palma does a, a great job with the material. Uh, one of my first, um, I wrote like paragraphs of notes here while I was watching it. And I remembered how much I actually really enjoy uh, right after the, uh, the, <clears throat> the mission goes bust and everybody's dead and, you know, hunts on the run. And he meets up with uh, Kittredge, his uh, handler. Oh, he's so good. He's they, so uh, good. Yeah, uh, Henry Zerny, is how you mm-hmm. pronounce him, which I was really excited to find out. Uh, he's actually he's coming, coming back. He's coming back. They're doing the story full circle with these. Um, I wonder these, if it's going to turn out that he's like been, because this, this most recent one, it's a direct sequel to Fallout, I think. Um, yeah, I think so. And uh, I wonder if they're going to do a thing where like, he's actually been the big bad all along type of situation, which w- would feel really forced. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I wouldn't, I, I think it would be cool since he was like the antagonist sort of of the first one. I mean, he was just doing his job, but I know oh, he's the antagonist. I think he would be, he did play the nineties. He's not the bad guy, but he is the antagonist. Yeah. He did play the nineties, like government agent douchebag to a T. Yeah. And just his his line delivery in all of his scenes is just like so sumptuous. Yeah, and, uh, that entire aquarium hmm. restaurant sequence, like the rising tension with the close. I want to look up his and, nose hairs all day long. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's everything. That was I I forgot how much I love that whole scene, the direction of it, and all the pieces coming together. Like uh, the the soundtrack, the Danny Elfman's violin section going insane. That with the rising tension, the the tilted shots and then yeah looking at them from below and the shots just keep getting closer and closer as he's badgering uh tom cruise's character and and tom cruise hunt is realizing slowly like oh shit so there's so there's a there's a there's a myriad of moments of like building tension and emotional release in this movie that are used incredibly well unlike in the second movie where there are no moments of tension and no emotional release at all throughout the entire film. No, the emotional release is when it's over. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll get to that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, again, Brian De Palma brilliantly directing those uh, those high tension, the rising tension moments that build up and then the, the bubble bursting. And in this yeah. case, in the restaurant scene, it's him throwing the explosive gum against the wall. And, you know, and De Palma, De pa- you know, there's a reason why Tarantino ripped off De Palma so much. Because De Palma was one of the people who did it the absolute best throughout his entire career. Uh, I mean, I would say if there's one filmmaker that Tarantino has ripped off more in his career, it's Brian De Palma. Yeah. So I watched, a, I found a quick behind the scenes video from, I think, a, a, probably one of the first DVD releases. <laughs> wow, you went like, on, you went deep. You still like, have that DVD, don't you? I think I do actually. Uh, <laughs> uh, I ended up streaming it on FX now because HD, but it's. I think I still have the original like 
standard DVD of it. Anyway, uh, I saw a, a clip on YouTube from the behind the scenes bit about that restaurant sequence and the you know, explosion and everything. Uh, so we already know that Tom Cruise is nuts and wants to do his own stunts as much as possible. But I found out through this that uh, that was first off, that was his first major stunt work on this film. Uh, so this is where it started. Glass. This is where it started. Yeah. Him jumping through the glass. The, that, that I love that iconic shot, the slow-mo jump through the glass. Because it almost glass. looks like CG. Yeah. It, but, it's uh, not. but I knew it wasn't because I had read similarly that it was all practical. And I was like looking at it. I was like, it, it weird. It's I don't know if it's like the timing of the shots or whatever, if it was some sort of like sort of like avid effects that caused some artifacting or something. But it made it look sort of CG, but I knew that it wasn't. And that made it very impressive. Yeah, it's a very crisp shot. And watching the behind the scenes video is very impressive because you see the action happen in like seconds. And uh, they, they cut to Tom Cruise talking about it. And uh, he was talking with the stunt coordinator and the stunt coordinator is like, okay, so we're doing this all live. So he's uh, the shot starts with him crouched down because of the explosion. And then once they yell action or they, they actually counted him down, they said, I'm going to count down. The stunt coordinator says, I'm going to count to three. You go on three. I cannot believe they let him do this himself. Do not go at three and a half. (laughs) You know, you know, the only reason they let him do this himself. Yeah. Because he was the producer. Well, not only that, he convinced the studio to allow him to do his own stunts by foregoing his paycheck. He, at that time, he was commanding $20 million a movie, uh, according to his um, um, contracts. He foregoed his payout to allow the studio to purchase more expensive insurance to allow him to do his own stunts. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. That, and that, so you, this behind the scenes, yeah, this behind the scenes video, you see this, you know, take happen, and they go action, or he goes, they go one, two, three, and he runs. First off, the uh, there's the other stunt guy who launch gets launched through the breakaway glass. Mm-hmm. So then there's a hole that then Tom Cruise then immediately gets up and runs through as the rest of the aquarium stuff is falling down on his head. That's so nuts, what? It is, he is, seriously, if he went at three and a half seconds, he would have been like drowned and stabbed basically. <laughs> Cause it's still, it's breakaway glass, but it's still glass. Yeah. And like an insane mm-hmm. amount of water, it was nuts. Um, but anyway, I, I, that's, that's one of the things that I do love and appreciate about going back and watching older action movies, especially is because nowadays we just know in our heads, oh, that's, you know, it's that's, all CG. Yeah. Yeah. Or they green it's either all CG or miniatures. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, so all that happens, uh, we get a lovely performance by Vanessa Redgrave as Max or Maxine, the um, arms dealer, yeah, and no, she's she's, great. she's a delight. Uh, Ving Rhames and John Renault, anything they do is wonderful. John uh, Renault, yeah. I mean, that guy is is such a. Inter- I, I had forgotten that's how long ago it was that I saw this movie that I really he, forgot he was in it too that he not only that he's in it but he's actually one of the villains <clears throat> yeah mm-hmm. like I had totally forgotten that that whole plot point yeah I still enjoy the professional the, uh, himself the professional yeah Leon the professional I always remember it's funny like uh Byron you sent me that link about the uh What's the the terminology for that shot? So that's the- what, one of the things that I was noticing in the film is that there's a, just a ton of De Palma-isms and the most famous of the De Palma uh, effects is it's called a split focus or a split diopter, which um, requires a special um, lens and very incredibly specific lens uh, 
focusing from the DP. Mm-hmm. And what it does is it, it you're able to focus at two um, uh, depth of field planes separately, usually one in the extreme foreground and one in the extreme background. And uh, all of De Palma's films have it. Carrie has it. Um, uh, Blowout has it. You know, they all do. And this one has a bunch of split diopter effects. Yeah. I think I saw an example from uh, Spielberg using it in Jaws, even in yep. that article you showed me. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, what were you going to say about that, though? Um, oh, it, it's funny enough, once we get to the next uh, big. Uh, you know, moment of tension, the whole Langley sequence, the CIA sequence where they're stealing the Nautilus. Um, oh, uh, yeah. it, always, it always cracked me up as a kid and it did again <laughs> now. his clothes. When, uh, oh, well that too, yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, Kittredge afterwards, after they break out, he's like, you and I know about this. Nobody else, blah, blah, blah. Oh, what do we do about this guy? Uh, just, I want him to radar tower in alaska by the end of the day just mailing his clothes yeah <laughs> the poor, poor i've guy never caught that before and i was like man that's a really funny line yeah so <laughs> fucked up for that poor guy he pukes all day and then he gets sent home. yeah <laughs> um but no the actually the other part that cracked me up using that same camera technique is when uh they're in the middle of the heist and Jean Renault starts hearing a rat crawling nearby him. Oh, yeah. And you just get a super close-up shot of right up his nose. <laughs> his big old five head <laughs> up in the fence. <laughs> uh, <but it's> great. <laughs> so good. Uh, oh, man. And that, again, that... Well, now this is another type of tension scene. So that the restaurant scene, you know, there's the whole rising tension and then the bubble burst. And in this one, it's uh it's more of just like a long-standing layer of tension as you know which helps with the because of the silence of the entire sequence. You're just I was going to say like this is probably one of the longest moments of silence in a, a like full-out blockbuster that I've ever seen. Yeah, it's still great. Um and it's just yeah, you get that like steady baseline of tension through the whole sequence thanks to the silence and then the actual it's like a fake out because once he has one arm back up in the vents and you think oh now we can breathe a sigh of relief then the bubble burst is the surprise knife drop and that beautiful and the slow motion cgi knife that falls which is very reminiscent to me of again brian de palma's the untouchables uh, oh, towards the end, the baby carriage going yep. down the stairwell. Down the and it's just one of those yep. like slow motion. Oh, shit, this is happening. And there's nothing we can do to stop it. <laughs> yeah. No, and it's all and it's all, and it's honestly like you you rarely see well because what that does is that uh, that takes your your success and pops a bubble. You know, mm-hmm. it takes your you know, your mo- you still get the the, mo- the rising moments of tension with the success, but then that pops the bubble and you're like, what could possibly come after this? It's excellent screenwriting in terms of that scene. I think it's incredibly well constructed. Um, And it's something that we just don't see in modern movies done well anymore. Um, I'm off the top of my head. I'm trying to like think of an example of a good moment that sort of like is similar I guess maybe Black Widow's demise where she fakes him out and throws herself over. Yeah, but even that, it was, uh, there wasn't like... You already know it's coming, sort of? Yeah, you do. Yeah, for sure. Um, There's no real, like, 
sigh of relief yeah uh, before that you know before you know it takes you down the rabbit hole again uh, anyway um the other note i wrote is that i still love after the fact when um jean renault is is making demands and uh and tom cruise uh tricks him uh, fakes him out with the magic trick you mess with money you mess with my money i'll slit your throat oh yeah play play any slight or he said try any sleight of hand with my money I'll slit oh your that's right yeah but that fucking magic trick that that sleight of hand trick that tom cruise does it's still i he does it so fucking well i spent my childhood trying to figure well, out you know it's a movie right <laughs> no i know but he does it in camera it's easy to do magic tricks in films no i know they can cut no, 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 but there are shots in camera where he makes it disappear from his hand. Okay. There's still plenty of like a, seconds of shot where it's like, you know. He did it himself. Yeah, you need to have the yeah. skill to do it. Otherwise, you know, that disc would have just flopped right out or it would have been, you would have been able to see it hanging behind his hand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, uh, what else? What else? Um, yeah, the rest of the movie playing out, we get uh, eventually John Voight revealing himself back to um so meg was kind of tuning in and out while i was watching the movie but her commentary immediately seemed john boy oh him how the hell did that guy make angelina jolie <laughs> yeah right <laughs> every time every time she's about screaming like how like i don't get it well as far as i've heard from both of the them eyes. As, as far as i've heard from both of them both of them wish he hadn't yeah mm-hmm I think I remember there was like there was shots of them at like awards shows and stuff early in her career, like around like Tomb Raider, like 2000. Like you see them and, and she's still got the young kind of baby face. And she had briefly she had briefly Donald. reconciled with him in the two in the like late 90s and early 2000s. Yeah, he but, was like, in one of the Tomb Raider think, movies as, his fa- was as her father. Um, prior as, to the Billy Bob Thornton relationship. And then she got with him and then they completely like. Had a falling Broke out, a part, yeah. yeah, had a falling out because I think Billy Bob Thornton is the same age or close to his age. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and also, Billy Bob Thornton is like notoriously left leaning, and uh, okay, Voight is not. Is no, not. he is the, <laughs> is the exact child. opposite of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah. So he, you know, we 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 figure it out. Hunt figures it out. Jim's, uh, you know, behind the whole thing uh still not sure about claire which we kind of talked about earlier see this is i think this is the part of the movie that uh doesn't has never i I don't think it's ever really worked for me and i think it's still to this day is the biggest issue with the film is that the ending uh, so i in a lot of reviews i remember reading that the movie is needlessly convoluted and i think this is the part that they're talking about Um, there are there are definitely cuts that uh that would have made things make a little more sense. I do remember. Yeah, definitely. I do remember in the uh, in the trailers for this film, you got more like sexy shots between, like a love scene between uh, Claire and Ethan, which never happens in the movie. Uh, but you can. Yeah, it's that's... obvious that she's trying to seduce him, like as part of the, their. Supposedly, weird it was theme. part of a uh, uh, a scrapped early sequence that was shot. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also like... a hallmark of 90s films is the trailers are almost universally yeah. m- majority of it was was footage that that doesn't end up in the film yeah like and then later in the a... yeah yeah for sure and then, and then later in the uh confrontation in the train car and the baggage car um they really lean heavily on um 
Jim Phelps leans heavily on uh, like Claire seducing Ethan, even though we don't really see much come of it. Again, they cut yeah. that. But he's like, he does a whole like, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, Ethan, blah, blah. And it's like, and has he been? Kid, yeah, and a kid that made <laughs> yeah. it me, I was like, oh, is it, Or is this yeah. dude just like paranoid? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, it seems like he probably is already paranoid, you know, like. Yeah. But I guess in, in light of the, you know, cut extended scenes and how they kind of like they just kind of allude to it with the fade out where she's like trying to you know mm-hmm. kiss him and everything and you know whatever she's also like 20 years younger than john voight in the film too that's what yeah. that's another thing that always really confused me in the film when john voight was talking about how this was his wife and i was just like yeah and it's extra right. <laughs> it makes those extra it makes it extra creepy as just seeing john's voice voight's fucking face and his creepy ass line of having tasted the goods. Oh like, god. Oh. Yeah. oh, it's so bad. No bueno. No bueno. Cringy as fuck. Yeah. No, yeah, I he said that and I don't I, I hadn't remembered that part and I was just like, "Oh god, that Yeah. No, just stop." Uh, it, there are well, similar scenes in Mission Impossible 2, by the way. Oh, the entire movie. Yeah. Uh, but and, I mean, it's, I mean, that gets into a conversation of like, I mean, are we expecting our, our villains to be good people? I mean, they're fucking villains. Uh, so, I mean, and yeah, I, but it I also, it's just like, it, it's something that makes it enough of the audience like feel uncomfortable yeah. and not in a, a, a way that's like a villain uncomfortable. It's like, oh, I've been molested or I've been raped. I don't feel comfortable with this type of language being used, yeah. you know? And again, we're watching this with 2021 eyes, a yeah. 1996 movie. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I'm, at the time, I'm sure it was absolutely fine. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, still, to, to, to this day. It's also like, not that big of a deal now, you know. Yeah. yeah. But uh, this all leads up to um, one of the action sequences that fucking blew my mind as a kid, uh, the helicopter and uh, train. Now... As an adult, I realized that there's no fucking way that a helicopter could no. get in a goddamn plane. No. no, not at all. I mean, I'm not, I'm, <laughs> I'm not an engineer. I do not have specs, but I'm pretty sure there's not enough. Okay, so phone. there's, uh, so the whole, the whole scene, I think, largely has a- aged better than it has any, like, it's, reason it's still, to, you know. Yeah, it's still fucking fun as shit. But I there is it. one shot that I think is really funny, especially if you know anything about the way that computer graphics work. Huh. Um, there is one shot when they're actually in the tunnel mm-hmm. and uh, Jean Renault's like pilot is clearly just a 2D texture. Really? That is being moved back and forth like this. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm tilting my hand back and forth at like a 15 degree ankle. Oh, you're um, doing like the Queen's wave. Yeah, like the Queen's <laughs> wave. And it's very, very, very obvious that it's just oh a 2D plane that is being rigged and moving back and forth at a 15 degree angle. <laughs> with like a, a fucking Muppet? <laughs> yes, exactly. And I, 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 go back I, and watch it again. I rewatched it like 10 times <laughs> because it looks so silly. Oh, wow. Because it's so obvious in HD now. Like it is yeah. like blaringly obvious. Like... I, I guess I told you. You're not going to be able to unsee it the next time you. Damn it, you ruined it for me, Byron. (laughs) I I still, it still got me. I was still like fully absorbed in the movie. And I haven't watched it in years. So I was enjoying the shit out of it. And uh, that end sequence, that's one of those that just gets me every time. Um, 
I mean, like some, it, it hits me like some of the sequences and like true lies, you know, the whole mm-hmm. end with the Harrier and everything. I'm just like sold. I'm just in action movie heaven at that point. I don't give a shit. Um, you know, and I actually think it's one of the, I think it's one of the very first um, almost entirely blue screened or at this point, I think it still would have been green screen. Um, entirely green screened action sequences that I'd seen at that point. Mm-hmm. Um because they really didn't do them prior to that. Not complete. Yeah. There was. Well, yeah, this is one of those. And again, this is what I enjoy about some older action movies. Whereas now we feel kind of, it feels very desensitized uh, now that we're, you know, we've got superhero cinema everywhere. Mm-hmm. And we just, it's just a given that our heroes are pretty much indestructible you know, unless there's a plot point, uh, uh, you know, to... Yeah, it's like Ian McKellen saying that he cried on the set of The Hobbit because this isn't why he got into acting. Yeah, but in these older action movies, I think I really appreciate how there's much more buildup to the larger-than-life heroics. Um, Like, you know, Bruce Willis in Die Hard, like, you feel every cut and bruise and shot and stab that he gets because he's the everyman, basically, you know, yeah. I mean, of course, yeah, he takes out the fucking terrorist, but like we lead up to the point where he does larger than life shit, like jumping off the side of a building. And we have an entire him. movie of humanizing him before he's able to do the superhuman stuff. Yeah. And, and same thing here before Ethan Hunt gets, or Tom Cruise gets on top of a fucking bullet train and then, you know, jumps onto a helicopter and jumps back onto the train. And so it's yeah. more, you know, it's more earned. Um, and that's why I think the movie largely succeeds at what it uh, was setting out to accomplish is because the stakes are for the first half of the movie relatively small. And the stakes for the movie are in general, relatively small. We're not talking about nukes going off. We're not talking about a worldwide plague that's going to wipe out all of humanity. Uh, We're talking about a list of about 200 IMF officers getting their identities leaked and possibly, you know, being assassinated yeah Uh, that's that's much much smaller stakes than a lot of these movies you know take on um for example the second one (laughs) yeah um yeah um yeah so um we get the lovely red light green light explosion the theme song kicks in and i do uh again i do love those uh those very human moments as opposed to like the you know the superhero doing the perfect kicks and spins in the air or whatever uh the mission impossible series does a great job of uh similar to like the the like the uncharted video games where the hero just gets by with an inch of his life you know that that shot where the busted helicopter blade comes like right at his neck and that's the end of your sequence right there and the uh the engineer faints right behind him oh yeah you know and and they they chose that moment so the engineer starts that scene off with saying speed up speed up it's gonna hit us so right as it accelerate so right as it explodes is the time they decide to slow down and stop excuse me what so one thing i one thing i uh i forgot to mention sort of near the end the beginning is um i think part of another reason why the movie um manages to set up because the movie has stakes and the movie sets up that, you know, the stakes are high because in the beginning of the film to, you know, we forget that Emilio Estevez at the time oh. was still, a By the pretty, way, yeah, was still a pretty big star and was like 
and was well he was used in a lot of the promotional materials all he had to do was fucking lay down i know (laughs) i've also never understood like what are those what do elevators have spikes that come out of the ceiling and just like a hanging busted like i've never i've never understood what those spikes were they installed are they supposed to be there was it a booby trap is this like is this night trap or something you know like um so so one of, one of the things that sets up the stakes for the movie is emilio estevez dying in the first 20 minutes yep and born bombay I, did not and last i think long. that as a kid definitely because as a kid i you know i had seen mighty ducks i knew who emilio estevez was he and was then the he one dies yeah and I, he dies in the first yeah. 20 minutes that that i've never seen that in a movie at that, at point, that really. age i didn't know tom cruise outside of probably top gun top gun is probably the only thing I, i'd recognize tom cruise from yeah. but then he the the only other person in that movie that i recognize fucking What's dies the US of us. yeah exactly yeah. uh and i think the only other movie that i can think of where something like that happens is uh that i saw around that time was executive decision <laughs> where, Kurt, where Kurt Russell dies in the first like ten minutes of the movie? No, 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 no. Steven yeah, Seagal. Was... Oh, Steven yeah, Seagal. Steven That's Seagal. Right. Yeah. yeah. Kurt Steven Russell Seagal dies in like the first ten minutes of the movie, and I was like, and he was he was on what? all of the promotional material. Yeah, exactly. Because you you thought that was another Steven Seagal fucking movie because Steven Seagal was the king of like late eighties, early nineties action flicks. Yeah, and uh, oh, those weirdly enough, actually, I think those movies. <laughs> Executive decision was ninety five, and this yeah. would have been shortly after that. And mm-hmm. I probably watched them very short, like very soon. Yeah, like I think I saw Executive Decision, like on VHS or something. Yeah. Um, also in that so, same yeah. movie, uh, uh, poor, I don't remember the actor's name off the top of my head, but poor Miles Dyson. Uh, oh yeah, gets paralyzed like in that same moment, <laughs> and he just paralyzes the whole goddamn movie. <laughs> he, that dude does not have a good track record in movies. No, no, not uh, at all. I think the only thing that he doesn't die in is Brother from Another Planet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's got that Sean Bean effect going. Yeah. <laughs> oh, geez. Um, yeah, so that pretty much uh, sums up Mission Impossible 1. We, we close out with that sweet Moby mix I totally forgot about. Yeah, so <laughs> supposedly they specifically, U2 specifically worked on this version of the the theme song and they specifically got dance uh, like six different dance remix made so that they could sell them as singles oh boy what <laughs> fucking youtube youtube's like was kit. this because like, of the batman fun. forever like mix like <laughs> that that happened in 95 because that they also worked on like you know, i don't give a shit about youtube whatsoever but that track on batman forever is pretty fucking sweet that hold me, throw me, kiss me, kill me. Yeah, it is pretty good. I, I gotta admit that, yeah. And then I completely, I this, I was watching the end credits of this, and I was like, oh yeah, that Moby remix, that's hilarious. And then I re- remembered, oh shit, this was '96, and then a year later, he remixed the James Bond theme for Tomorrow Never Dies. Oh wow! In '97, Tomorrow Never Wait, Dies features a Moby. Had, was Moby big by this point, or yeah, had, was. had Play already come out? Because didn't Play come out in '97? Don't know, but yeah, play he came did out those. in '99. Actually, that's what oh. I was gonna say. Oh, okay. I think at this point, Moby was still only really making singles. 
and remixes, and he hadn't even released his like full albums yet. All right. Well, I mean, he's he was still signed, really well known, but he was signed with Elektra by '93, so he was a big name then. Well, that's mainly because he was doing remixes, though. Like, because yeah. his remixes were like Fortet remixes in the 2000s. Like anything that he touched was golden. So yeah, yeah that makes sense. Ugh. All right, guys. Well, I think it's about time. We, uh, <laughs> for better or worse, we got to move on to Mission Impossible. Oh, M- so, did you take as uh, as detailed notes for the second one as he did for the first one? Uh, actually, I surprisingly did a bit. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I didn't expect to, but I couldn't help it because I had to. Okay, let's. Let, okay, let's start from the beginning. Mission Impossible Two, directed by John Woo. And again, to my surprise, story credits by Ronald D. Moore and Brandon Braga of yeah. 90s Trek and Battlestar Reboot. And fame. there's a good story about how this happened, too. Okay. Oh, I didn't catch oh, the story. I'll, yeah, I'll just get into it. So the whole reason and the whole way that they got brought on to do Mission Impossible 2 is... Uh, so let's flash back to 1994 and then subsequently 1996. In 1994, um, Brandon and Braga, um, I'm sorry, um, <laughs> Ronald D. Moore and uh, Brandon Braga, Brandon Braga um, had just written Star Trek Generations after having finished the see uh, f- the series finale, All Good Things for Star Trek: The Next Generation, and then they subsequently immediately went into writing Star Trek um, Generations, which was not very well received critically, but was pretty big for the franchise um, and was a commercial success. And the fans uh, loved it. I think. And the fans, for the most part, yeah, lo- loved it. There's yeah. some fans that hate it. I'm not one of those fans. Um, then they were given more freedom with Star Trek First Contact and they both came back for Star Trek First Contact and supposedly uh, the test screenings for Star Trek The First Contact were the best test screenings in the history of Paramount with an A with uh, almost across the board A score from all their test screenings for Star Trek The First Contact. Yeah, so first fucking contact, man. Because it's a great movie. It's a fantastic yeah. movie. And it's probably, I think it's still in the top three of the best Star Trek films. Um, and so because of the success of First Contact and First Contact ended up becoming a really big hit. Uh, the producers at Paramount were like, hey, uh, Mission Impossible is coming out next year uh, or is about to come out and we need to do a sequel. Are you guys interested in working on it? And they were like, oh, we love Mission Impossible. Like we grew up with it. Uh, You know, uh, even um, uh, Spock's in it. Um, Leonard Nimoy. Nimoy. Uh, so they said yes, and they they got brought on to do the screenplay. Um, but originally, it was not John Woo who was attached. It was um, uh, back into the left. Um, JFK, uh, Oliver Stone. Oh shit! Oliver Stone was originally attached to direct Mission Impossible Two, but wow. then right, and they even worked with uh, with um, Oliver Stone and his screenwriter on the first story treatments. But then uh, 
Oliver Stone and Paramount couldn't get together on it. And so he dropped out. So they brought in John Woo and Tom Cruise and him and Ronald D. Morse and Braga sat together in um, Tom Cruise's mansion for a few months shaping the story. And supposedly most of the movie and most of the story stuff was stuff that Tom Cruise told them to put in the movie. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I saw some uh, bits of, uh, well, I saw some quotes from Robert town, the, the screenwriter. And he said the the first few passes were very, very rocky. They said they didn't really get the script into shape until five days before shooting. And even I then, yeah. even that, then, that they flew, yeah, even then they flew him out during production to continue reworking the script. And even to pre, even, even to uh, post-production, he was in the editing room, still kind of like assisting in the tinkering <laughs> to make it all make sense. Um, um, the other thing yeah. that I, uh, I, I was reading was that uh, during those story sessions, they, they came to understand that Tom Cruise was actually a really big fan of uh, and was a huge film fanatic and had, was a huge fan of Hitchcock. And during and um, uh, Ronald D. Moore is also a huge Hitchcock guy. And so they started nerding out about Hitchcock and they somehow got into this idea that the that Mission Impossible 2 would be like a spiritual remake of Notorious, the Hitchcock film. I've never seen Notorious, but nothing Which is about a master in- thief uh, with uh, about like a, a spy using a master thief to like to um, uh, get back at his other spy antagonist. Huh. Yeah. So the only thing that survived from that was that Sandy Newton's character is a thief, but yes. then that turns out to not matter whatsoever at all, to the, <laughs> even to the plot of the movie. God damn. Ugh. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's get into it. So from the first few frames of this movie, I could tell it was the year two thousand. Like oh, it, yeah. the film stock, the coloring on those first aerial mm-hmm. shots of Sydney, Australia, like even the font on the opening credits screen, <laughs> yep. year 2000. Now, now, did they have frosted tips though? Oh, yeah. The first henchman that we meet <laughs> on the airplane has frosted tips. I went, oh, fuck. I was like, you know, oh, that actor, God. that actor is also, um, he's on Lost. He's the one who uh, uh, takes, what's her name? Anyways. Keep going. All right, whatever. Um, so we get Tom Cruise with long hair now, uh, chatting with the Awful. old scientist. Yeah, t- chatting with the old scientist on the plane, who is the uh, nice coat guy nice. from. Uh, this, is, this is a nice coat. Really nice coat. <laughs> yeah. And then we get the reveal that it's actually not Tom Cruise; it's the bad guy, another agent gone rogue. Because it's always an agent gone rogue. Um, I do enjoy the progression of the technology. Where in the first film they just disguise themselves with like the masks and like their best impression, but now they get like that. They, it looks like the anti theft stickers from CDs and DVDs, like Sam Good. <laughs> Apparently, if you stick that on your Adam's apple, you can talk in a completely different voice and accent. <laughs> uh, but that actually, the the villain in this film is uh, Doug Ray Scott, who is a Scottish actor. Uh, he plays the villain is Sean Ambrose is the name of the villain in Mission Possible 2 
Uh, I'm more interested in his backstory or the behind the scenes, actually. This guy, I didn't recognize him at first because he's so young here, but this is a guy on Batwoman now playing Jacob Kane, uh, Kate Kane's father. And really? The, yeah, the head of the uh, Crows organization on Batwoman. Yeah. I did not realize that. Now that you say it, I, I absolutely know. I get it now. I, yeah. I and he's good on that. that. He's one of the one, he's one of the one decent actors, on a few decent actors on Batwoman. Uh, that fucking show. Anyway. Uh, now here's the crazy part. At the same time as Mission Impossible 2, Doug Ray Scott was offered the role of Wolverine in the first X-Men. Uh, he was he was going to be Wolverine. Unfortunately, Mission Impossible 2 had production delays due to all the script problems, etc. And so he was forced to drop out. So the only reason we got Hugh Jackman was because of the production delays of Mission Impossible 2. At the time, Hugh Jackman was relatively unknown and then ended up being hired to replace him. Well, you know why there are production delays on this movie, right? Well, I know the script stuff. What else? So that's largely not... So the biggest reason why there are production delays on Mission Impossible 2 Mm -hmm. was because Tom Cruise was shooting Eyes Wide Shut for a year and a half. And it was only supposed to be a six-month shoot. Oh, wow. So this movie got pushed back almost nine months. Jesus. It was supposed to happen way, way, way before it. And so, you know. And they still couldn't get the script right with nine extra months? Yep. (laughs) Jesus Christ. That tells you how bad of of shape it was in. Yeah. Yeah. Also, also more ties to X-Men. Ian McKellen was also offered a role in this movie. Uh, But he wasn't allowed to see the entire script probably because it was a fucking mess at the time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have shown so, it to him either. So he couldn't tell if the script was any good from like the snippets they showed him. So he ended up turning it down. He was like, well, I'm not going to take a chance on this. I and the very, was... nec- the very next day, he gets the call from Brian Singer offering him Magneto. And then shortly after that, Peter Jackson calls up offering him Gandalf. <laughs> so if he, he if he had taken that part in Mission Impossible 2, we wouldn't have gotten him as Gandalf or Magneto fucking nuts man <laughs> yeah i think i i think we've got the uh better end of the deal on this one yeah i think he did too those kinds of stories are so interesting to me because they're such iconic like actor character moments that to think of how it could have gone very differently with those small split minute decisions yeah. or because other projects fell out it just like it baffles my mind yeah, yeah. can you imagine like any other actor as gandalf no, absolutely no. not. That's nuts. Oh, we get Tom Cruise on the cliffs. Now, okay, so at the beginning of the movie, well, we see the uh, you know the villain set up and everything, and then then flash over to Ethan Hunt rock climbing. Now, Tom Cruise refused to do the scene on a small scale set, and he wanted to do it on a real cliff, of course. And he was advised by like rock climbing experts, but um, so this was one of the things that he told them needed to be in the film because he was super into rock climbing at the time. Yeah, and uh, it freaked the it pissed off John Woo and terrified him. Like he said, like John Woo was saying, he he like he tried and tried, but he couldn't talk him out of it. He said, like John Woo is like I was so scared, I was sweating, like I couldn't even watch the monitor when we shot it. <laughs> Seriously, I, yeah. I totally agree. It's fucking nuts, but yeah. And again, 
the the titles are playing through this entire sequence and i just keep laughing at that i don't know what font that is but it screams like album cover or music video from the year 2000 and specifically the year 2000 not the early 2000s not 2001 yeah it's like its own era that it really is well because it it's it's post it's like post millennium pre to pre 9-11 yeah it's uh it's, it's got w- windows me written all over it yeah <laughs> seriously cool. yeah windows me and, it's and like, i know, mean the most iconic element of i think any of this is the limp biscuit cover <laughs> of the mission impossible yeah. 2 theme yeah that is played so, in the first scene in the movie so tom cruise gets his uh mission through some sweet sunglasses Oh and my then god, and those sunglasses them, are just so 2000s too. Oh tosses god. them at the camera to which they explode oh. in the opening titles. I, I was... <laughs> when, when I remembered what was coming up with the toss <laughs> to the camera, I was just like just straight up Picard with my fucking face <laughs> right in the middle of my palm. Man, like, I, oh. was, I, was, I was rikering it with the double face... Uh, baseball. <laughs> to be fair, like if you take it out, take out the ridiculous, you know, movie that's playing ahead of you. Just listening to the instrumental version of that Limp Bizkit theme, the rock version of the Mission Impossible theme, if you will, it's pretty solid. I, I, I it's 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 dumb fun. I My think. skeptical eyebrow lifts. <laughs> okay. uh, definitely well, not the version with singing. God no. <laughs> Buckethead himself is 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 an incredible guitarist and bassist, but it works for the action scenes. Towards the end of the movie, the last the last twenty minutes of the movie, the whole chase and everything. It I mean, all right I there. So all I'm gonna say is that uh, the song that the that they used in the movie that was on the soundtrack mm. was on the Limp Bizkit album uh, Chocolate Starfish and the Hot Dog Flavored Water. Uh-huh. The masterpiece. So... The timeless classic. <laughs> yep. Um, so... Dear God. <laughs> the album of all time. All right. Dear God. So, so we get past Mass that. delusion. I swear to God, an entire generation of youth... <laughs> completely mind warped i don't know how the fuck it happens but it did it happened and we have to we have to all be aware that that happened i had it you had it you Mm -hmm. you had it we all had that album that was we were all all infected by the hot dog flavor that was 199 that was late 90s mtv it was the era of them still kind of playing music they were still kind of playing music but also they had like singled out and they had the the fucking dance shows where it was just music but with hot chicks in bikinis dancing mm-hmm. like that pretty was for nice. a white guy just to think about it it's pretty fly for a white guy times is what it is and and the thing is that like so the other weird thing is that like limbiscuit had already done a bunch of covers in their career like they did that actual, actually not terrible cover of um, uh, Faith, Faith by George Michael. Uh, I actually think it's a pretty decent. Like I prefer the George Michael version, but yeah. it's still a good song. Actually, it's not bad. I'm I'm probably gonna be blasphemous here, but I actually prefer the Limp Biscuit version because I don't like George Michael that much. 
Hey, you know, no accounting for taste. <laughs> so, um, so we get past the opening titles. Yeah, we're barely getting past that. <laughs> uh, and it's it's immediately obvious this plot hinges on a forced romance between uh, Sandy Newton and Tom Cruise. Uh, John Woo's immediate. By the like, way, Sandy Newton, the only good part of this movie. Yeah. Oh, she's she's wonderful. Yeah. Um, and and she was still half-assing this movie, and she was still the best part of it. She's so young. I forgot. Like, oh yeah. This. Um, well, she was like twenty-four. No, she was like twenty-four. Mm, she's yeah. in her fifties now. So she was. Yeah, and this was in. Oh, this was ninety-nine. So she would have been close to thirty. Yeah, she would have been close to thirty because she was really? seventy-eight or something yep. like that. She just hmm. looks really young. Oh, okay. All right. So uh, they. They first uh, we go to uh, I forget where they are like Madrid. Meg's looking up how old Thandie Newton is. Um, anyway, we immediately get uh, uh, Tom Cruise and Thandie Newton's characters. Like the second they lock eyes from across the uh, flamenco dancer uh, scene, just longing slow motion shots of them, which are repeated through the film. Uh, the whole love at first sight thing. Uh, and it, like seconds later, she's okay. It's cool that she's a thief, which is fun. You know, gives her some agency. And then, except you know, it doesn't have anything to do with the movie. Doesn't have anything to do with it, no. and it's just an excuse to get them in like a bathtub together, like hiding out. And with oh man, the shots where uh, Tom Cruise is lying back, and she you know wiggles on top of him so she can, can keep doing her thieving. And you literally only see her rack and his face. That's yes. all you see. <laughs> They're perfectly, her boobs are perfectly in frame for that shot while he's just down there smiling like happy as a clam. Uh, <laughs> well, wouldn't you be? Well, yes, I'm not yeah. saying I wouldn't, but you know, it's. But that was I, typical like 90s. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this immediately, this, this movie is entirely about style sharp suits sports cars and just more long sunglasses uh, everything just had to be rad just like and like <laughs> exploding all the time and everything it's motorcycles and long yeah. hair and metallica yeah. and like bad metallica mind you bad metallica not good metallica this was this was the preview this was the preview of saint anger metallica this well, was the song okay, that so came out before. This is the single that they released for before context, the sang- for San context, Anger. This movie came out uh, in April and they sued Napster in July. <laughs> so, oh, right. I think I might be flipping that. I think they sued Napster in April and this movie came out in July. So. All right. So uh, they, they have their little meet cute. She hates him at first, of course. And like a hot minute later, after like more long slow mo and a, a sports car race or whatever, and they're in bed, and they're in bed for just so a minute later, Anthony Hopkins can pop in and say, "Hey, bro, we need her to uh, sleep with her ex, the bad guy." That's not a problem for you, is it? Of of course he sleeps with her because he saved her life. He didn't. He didn't cause her to almost die. It wasn't her his fault that she almost died, but he right. saved her life anyway. And uh-huh. I was being sarcastic there because it, it totally was his fucking fault that she almost died. <laughs> but then my favorite part in this, these beginning moments is when Anthony Hopkins does come in and gives him the mission and everything. And then he slides over that giant fucking brick of a digital camera. 
with the shots of the plane crash and stuff. Oh, yeah. That thing is so huge. It's practically a fucking backpack. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, at the time of this movie, because this movie is all about style, that that was some sleek new technology. That was like bleeding edge tech. Yeah. yeah. Giant it's got eight megabytes of flash memory installed in, it, in it the camera. Like it was a cam had a half a megapixel <laughs> resolution. <laughs> Oh, I forgot no, to mention. It would have been like it would have been like two megapixels by that point. Yeah, I forgot to mention that when we were talking about the first movie. It is so charming that era of cinema when the world could be saved or destroyed on With floppy a... disks. <laughs> that wasn't just any floppy disk, though. That was, that like was a, a two hundred thirty megabyte floppy disk. Megabyte floppy disk. That's also, right. I read that in the first one. Um, so they're working on a MacBook the whole time because mm -hmm. Apple computers paid fifteen dollar. $15 million for all the computers in the movie to be max. Yeah. They also paid for the advertisement of the film too. Oh, wow. So uh, in this one, we do get uh, Ving Rhames is back underused, but at least he's still in there, which is nice. Um, wow. Anytime you can bring him back in this franchise, you got to. And he's joined by an actor, John Polson as the character Billy Baird, which He's basically like a proto Simon Pegg, but totally yeah. not entertaining whatsoever. It, not fun Completely or funny forgettable. or like, I, I didn't even know that character was in this movie. Yeah. yeah I, I, I completely forgot. forgot about that character. hundred percent. The, the funny tech guy, basically. Um, and then, but then we get Brendan Gleeson, yeah. Mad Eye Moody <laughs> as, uh, as McCloy, yep. the, the evil pharmaceutical executive who's only in it for the money. So, you know, Every every pharmaceutical exec um, uh, for the biocyte company or whatever. Um, with the we get the whole break in sequence, which is a pretty on the nose repeat of the uh, aerobatics from the first film. Um, you know, uh, Ethan Hunt going down on the on the wire to you know narrowly get into this super high tech, fancy looking pharmaceutical lab. Um, uh, I do enjoy that the villain, though, did like a cheeky, like he points out literally about Cruz's wacky stunts. He says something like, like, oh, Hunt will likely perform some aerobatic insanity before <laughs> before harming a security I guard. Saw that too. Yeah, I, I just I just uh, I saw Ronald D. Moore and Brendan Braga just like at their laptops just me like, I'm so clever. Yeah. <laughs> um, OK, so when. um when Cruz Hunt is collecting the virus for transport and they've got those like fancy looking like injection gun things, why does it look and sound like a fallout laser rifle? <laughs> like he's collecting for transport and it's like with this crazy light show kicks off. Like what the fuck was that about? I don't know. Anyway, uh, in this sequence, we get the first two gun shootout. Um, and also so many zooms to the face. Oh yeah, through this entire movie, that. but especially Constant, in constantly. Yeah. Just you can tell it's a, you can tell it's a John Woo film after that. Yeah, um, Ving Rhames almost blows up in the van. Nice that they didn't off him because he's too much fun to not bring back into this franchise as much as possible. Um, uh, in uh, Sandy Newton does get a nice little story beat that gives her kind of her own agency for a moment. She, she's mostly arm candy treated like in this whole film, but she, you know, says fuck you to the villain and injects herself and everything. 
Although they kind of like that, actually. Yeah, I do. Although they kind of steal that moment away from her a hot second later when he's like, what were you thinking? She's like, I wasn't thinking. Like, I'm just oh, a silly yeah. girl who loves her man who she met three days ago. You yeah, because she was like, it was the only thing I could do to, to save you. And I was just like, what about like the human race? It could have been, yeah. <laughs> Fuck they them, right? <laughs> it could have been more, it could have been better worded. Like, 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 you know, it was the right call or like it was the only move we had or something, something better than like, I just wanted to save you or I don't it's know. Like, what yeah, I was you've known this dude for like less than two days. And what about like every single human being you've ever met? Yeah. But again, we're watching this with 2021. I 15-year-old Tony ate this shit. Up. Also, we've been through a pandemic. We know what it's like. <laughs> um but yeah, so um yeah, pretty pretty shortly after this, we get a lot of the villains chatting with each other and revealing their whole thing to infect all of Sydney, Australia to then, you know, have need for the cure, hence they make a buttload of money. Um uh, it, while Tom Cruise is infiltrating the bad guy meetup lair, wherever the fuck they are, uh, to get the cure of the virus, he does this. He does this unnecessary flip kick to dispose of the <laughs> henchmen guarding the perimeter. And this flip kick is captured from like four or five different angles. It reminded me of like yeah. in like 80s action movies where the stunt team like blows up a building or something. Like they may do a big explosion they're really proud of. So it looks like 10 different explosions. Yeah. They do the same thing with his flip kick from like five or six angles. And I'm like, why? Like it was just, it's Couldn't so- he just like shot him or punched him in the back of the head? He, like, he, know, he, like... knocks, he punches him, he knocks him down and the guy's already on the ground. But then like as a finisher move, he just does his front Whoa. flip kick yeah. to the ground. And Tom Cruise must've been just so proud of that that he said like I want this from like 10 different angles cuz he does a he does an even like he does a, like a backflip kick like a few minutes later while he's in the lair but they don't even cover that one as well they, I don't know what the big deal about So <laughs> so what this lord okay so what this gets into is that the, uh, uh, what we're getting into in the second half of the movie is the John Wooisms and is oh, the yeah. is the like stylistic flourishes that John Woo that John Woo brought to the film Wooism. and the woo meter is cranking up. <laughs> oh, it's like two eleven. But here's the thing: is that like, and I've noticed that in this era, um, and this is not the first time this has happened, and this happened quite a bit in this era of filmmaking. Actually, uh, it happened, and there's a couple of specific things, and I think you guys are going to get what I'm talking about as soon as I mention them. Um, director of Alien um, Resurrection, Jean Pierre Jeannot. Oh yeah. Alien Resurrection, mm-hmm. um, Batman Forever, Joel Schumacher, Joel Schumacher, uh, Jean Pierre Jeannot, and Jean Wu with Mission Impossible too. So what what happens in this era is you have a bunch of <clears throat> um, independent or uh, s- like smaller mid tier movie really stylistic directors getting um, big Hollywood blockbuster movies to direct because of their really impressive stylistic work on effectively what are foreign films. Mm-hmm. Um, less so with Schumacher, but it still applies. Um, but the problem is, is in this role of now directing this huge blockbuster film, what these specific directors do in these cases is that they don't try to make the films their own with grounded stories what they do is they 
take existing um, screenplays, which are largely pretty down to earth, and they emulate American action movies mm. rather than trying to make their own grounded but still stylistic version of the type of thing that they would have made back home. And all three of those films really largely do the exact same thing. They try to emulate the worst excesses of American action films, not make more uh, hum humanistic versions that they made on their own. Alien Resurrection, is the, and I think Alien Resurrection specifically is the more appropriate comparison to this, um, but Schumacher definitely does it in Batman Forever as well. Yeah. Um, because if you think about Alien I mean, Resurrection, go ahead. Sorry, Batman Forever, it just, to me, he was just trying to recreate the 60s show. Yeah, exactly. Um, and with Jean-Pierre Jeannot with uh, Alien Resurrection, he was quoted on set as saying, I wanted to make a big, dumb American blockbuster. And, yeah. but he's like, but the problem is, is that Alien and Aliens aren't that. They're not big, dumb American blockbusters. They are the antithesis to big, dumb American blockbusters. So he just, and it seems like John Woo is doing the exact same thing because John Woo was influenced by like the, the 70s era um, and early 80s American blockbusters. And so like hard-boiled, but hard-boiled is not dumb. Hard-boiled mm -hmm. is, and it also doesn't have this like absurd budget. It was largely grounded and it had a smaller budget. That's why, you know, everything felt so real and, and like visceral is because they had a fucking tiny ass budget and they were shooting in real locations in, in Hong Kong. Yeah. I mean, there were some set work, but like they were using real locations. And uh, this film just feels like this absurd, it, what like a fever dream version of what uh, a foreign director imagines a Hollywood blockbuster to be. Yeah. At the same time, um, everything I read up on during, you know, the you know, gathering of the trivia and behind the scenes story on this really harps on how much Tom Cruise is the driving force behind this entire franchise from day one. And so despite, you know, we can pin a lot of this on, you know, John Woo and his John Wooisms, but at the end of the day, it was Cruise signing off on all of it. That's true. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and honestly, like we can see the same things as like the, the, the action sequences in the first movie that were driven by Tom Cruise were the big set piece parts. The, yeah. the, the Brian De Palma stuff is the stuff that really works in the, I think in the beginning, at least in the first half of the first film, I think the Brian De Palma stuff is the strongest. And yeah. when it starts to get out of his wheelhouse is when I think the movie starts to fall apart. Um, yeah. And all of those sequences were almost largely uh, started as smaller sequences that then were pushed by um, uh, by Cruz and his producing partner as much as possible to inflate the budget to go bigger. Let's make it bigger. Let's make it bigger. Let's make it bigger. And it and it absolutely seems like, uh, especially with like a especially the anecdote that Ronald D. Moore said about how the the rock climbing ended up in the movie. Ronald D. Moore and Brandon Braga didn't want to like open with him rock climbing. What the fuck? It's 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 like it. You know who did almost the exact same thing with a vanity project? Star Trek Five. <laughs> the original opening to Star Trek Five was William Shatner climbing up 
the side of uh, Yellowstone National Park. El Capitan. Fucking El Capitan with hover boots. It's almost the exact same opening with two notoriously egomaniacally, like, like uh, almost delusional um, creators. Row, row, row your boat gently down oh the stream. <laughs> so, like, you know that Brandon, that Brandon and and um, Ronald D. Moore, when they heard that or when they heard this pitch, you know, in the back of their mind, they were going, "Oh God, please don't let this be a Shatner type of situation." This kind of reminds me. <laughs> but it of, was. Uh, I forget the name of the producer off the top of my head, but this reminds me of the guy who was hell bent on getting. A spider um, in his every single the, movie. Yeah, the spider in uh, the Lost Superman movie, and then uh, Wild Wild West, etc. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, we're well, we're almost two hours here. Let's uh, wrap this up here. So from um, from here we get um, yeah the bad guys in their uh, lair hunt infiltrates. Uh, uh, there's a lot of shots with him infiltrating with bad uh, you know the the bad guys monitoring the hall. John Peters, by the way. Oh, okay. Uh, we get pigeons, but then for his literal explosive entrance into the room, we get a green, a very obviously green screen dove flying through the frame. And uh, Tom oh my Cruise's, god, that moment is just Tom so Cruise's cringy, fiery, so cringy, fiery reflection slow mo in the terrified bad guy's eyes. Meanwhile, oh yeah, and there are so many in those slow mo shots uh, in this movie where they're supposed to be so intense. They got the they do the spooky choir thing, yep. like this the sudden music goes oh, like what what what? Oh, also the music in this film was done by Hans Zimmer, by the way. Yeah, oh. interesting upgrade from or well side grade I would say from Danny Elfman to Hans Zimmer. Because okay. this isn't like good era Hans Zimmer. This is like oh. really like basic like uninspiring Hans Zimmer. Oh boy, yeah. Um, yeah, so we get the spooky choir moment when uh, Hunt is, you know, walking by ominously and we see his fiery reflection in the bad guy's eyes. And then again, after he pulls the, uh, you know, the henchman uh, switcheroo and the uh, bad guy guns down his favorite best buddy henchman. Man, there's a lot of Scooby-Doo mask, like... I thought like, that I lost count, but I thought this is... There's so movie many in this movie. I think, like, I think there's, like, five different mask reveals in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. And uh and then from here it's just all downhill. Last 20 minutes of this movie, we get the we get the full biscuit. Uh oh the like God. the theme kicks <laughs> in. And Please don't ever say that again. <laughs> the title of the podcast. Uh and then it's just full action tropes abound. Like they just let the lid off and we get almost infinite ammo. I think he reloads once. Um <laughs> also they're just shooting at each other on motorcycles. Like like there is there is nothing that could be more like early 2000s just like Tony Hawk yeah. bullshit not not Tony Hawk like ex, like extreme BMX shit like yeah <laughs> motorcycle Matt Johnson. Myra yeah Matt Myra fucking just the worst extreme everything and with the oh god yeah. it's just so nightmarishly bad yeah and this, I this movie was begged to be watched with Doritos Extreme and Mountain Dew Gamer Fuel. <laughs> <laughs> Except Gamer Fuel wouldn't come around for a couple more years. 
Yeah. No, they had they had blue they had the the blue and red gamer fuels. Oh no, you're right because no, this World, of Warcraft, World yeah. of Warcraft didn't come out until 2005. No, no, 2005. The beta the beta came out in like 2002 2003 because I know I was just out of high school when I was playing the beta. Yeah, and uh, and again all the all the like ridiculous action tropes that like immediately like they all kick in like one after another after another. I was writing it down so he gets like almost infinite ammo. He, uh, uh, oh, all of a sudden, as he's exiting the place, there's just a bunch of hazardous chemical barrels, like, conveniently. Oh, yeah, what? Up. Like, <laughs> like, it's like a deathmatch level out of a video game. <laughs> it's, it's Mass then, Effect with the, with the, uh, with the. Exploding barrels. Exploding yeah. barrels everywhere. And because that's, you know, that's bad guy interior decorating 101 is what that is. And uh, also he finds time to put on sunglasses mid gunfight right before he gets on the bike. And then at this point I realized, oh, this is genius. Like, because again, year 2000, they had him disguise himself as the villain. So now the, the henchman. So now he has the henchman's patent leather jacket, which is oh, yeah. standard for the year 2000. You Any are movie that came out after the matrix. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. For the next yep. several years, you are not allowed to shoot guns, especially two guns without the long oh, no. patent leather jacket yeah <laughs> and sunglasses. even max Payne did it and he was in a video game yep yeah um so yeah and max and then- Payne was a uh, was a damn like blue jeans and hawaiian shirt character oh yeah well he i think he switched to the hawaiian shirt and the casual in the third one, one. In, in the, the first one he's he, he wears a duster oh yeah, that's right it's all dusters for the first two two games god max Payne. i haven't thought of that in like a decade Uh, (laughs) i love those games i play them all the time yeah so from here we're speeding off on the motorcycles we've wasted enough time on plot now it's just silly happy fun time there's yeah there isn't there isn't any plot in this in this movie for about 15 minutes of the ending we we get the iconic uh shot from the trailer the slow-mo motorcycle through the flames with sunglasses on uh we get the rest of the chase which ends in the motorcycle jousting and the beach with bullets yeah, and the beach knifey kick fight, which, oh. again, by the way, that knife to the eyeball thing, Tom Cruise demanded to use a real knife. Why? It does... Okay. They, yeah, they had it attached to a rigging that would allow the actor to come down. That on is so knife, fucking dangerous. Stopping to short his eye. Yeah, and when they did it, he had, like, about a quarter inch of room left. Like, just fucking... It's crazy. Anyway, and that's that's... At that point, that's pretty much it for the movie. Like they finish off the bad guy with. Okay, so one thing I, I noticed where so the the moment where he like kicks the gun out of the sand, <laughs> the where did the load. gun come from? Uh, he drops it. Yeah, that threw me. But I remember he drops it uh, when they fall off the bikes. And then did he cover it with sand? Hey, just the wind blowing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. And then it's like spring loaded. It just rockets. Yeah, out it just like fucking shoots into the air like five feet. <laughs> Well, no, only four uh, feet because that's how tall he is. Yeah, which uh, <laughs> <laughs> well played, which then allows him to off uh, our, our very forgettable bad guy, our uh, alternate universe Wolverine. Yeah, that's like constantly calling Danny Newton a bitch. Oh yeah, because that's what you do. You know, you're the villain. That's the only that one you bitch. Know. He was like willing to die for her like 20 minutes before, yeah, and like bitch. now he's like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that's pretty much it. They finish him off. There's a quick debriefing with Anthony Hopkins going like, oh, so you didn't bring back the shit. Well, oh, well. 
And then a nice shot of the Sydney Opera House and then roll credits. Roll. I was just going to say, I think this has the most boring ending to a movie I've ever, like literal, like the last two minutes of anything mm-hmm. I've ever seen. Yeah, they kept they the him and uh, Fanny Newton meet up in the park and you know let's get lost together or something and then just beautiful Sydney Opera House shot and, and then of course yeah. in the third one we never hear about any Newton's character ever again. No, of course, because this is Tom Cruise's uh, James Bond, like he's with another girl every time. Yeah. Although, well, until the later movies, then we get uh, the ongoing pseudo like the his wife who small story with Michelle Monaghan. Yeah. Yeah um it's really like movie four five six they really kind of they pretty much rebooted the franchise almost entirely yeah they're coming out with a seventh this year seven and eight are coming yeah yeah i didn't realize it was that many yeah yeah Uh, i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure the eighth one is going to be the last one because they shot they shot seven and eight back to back um uh, they had to put a stop on that actually uh, because oh really of the pandemic. yeah oh okay yeah but, uh, the, but it's that, was, that was the famous that was clip the with Tom Cruise uh, yelling at some douchebags that were uh, disregarding oh, the uh, COVID right. protocols yeah yeah that's that was right after they went back to production and he's like you're gonna get us fucking shut down so like two is just like one of these situations where. Um, it's embarrassing. <laughs> it's an embarrassing movie. Uh, like I, I, I do. Re- as I was watching, I realized that it, it wasn't as bad as I remember it being. But that's mainly because most movies from two thousand have not aged well. It was a very, very two thousand post Matrix movie. Yeah. Um, it, it, yeah. It feels the choices feel very bland to me compared to the first film oh absolutely because the first film was a spy thriller this was a dumb action flick also the first film was made by one of the best directors of the 1970s and 80s yeah and again yeah and again i think what sticks out to me with this one like you know whether you appreciate it or not um this film like every single choice is so stylistically of its time. Like I said before, like this could only have been made in the year 2000. Whereas the first, there's no way you're getting a limp biscuit song on a soundtrack in 2008. Yeah. (laughs) Whereas the, like every stylistic choice of the film feels that way. It's just so anchored to its time. Whereas the first film you could kind of fudge it like, Oh, this could have been made in the last 20 years or so. It's like very throwback spy thriller, but also modern blockbuster action mixed in there. Um, but this again, it's just it's a thousand percent the year two thousand, <laughs> whether you appreciate that or not. And it also makes sense because uh, in the first one, like we said, um, this was the very first film that Tom Cruise co-produced himself, and mm. so he did not have as much control in the first one as he had on this one. Okay. The reason why he had so much control on this one is because the first one made two hundred eighty million dollars at the box office worldwide. Totally, yeah. including domestic. And um, considering early 90s flicks, that was insane. That was a lot of money, especially for the budget, which was only like $65 million. Yeah. Um, and uh, again, uh, a snippet from uh, Robert Town, the, uh, the screenwriter for the first two films. Uh, he said essentially in the, in the first movie, well, of course, the other behind the scenes story we know from the first movie 
is that uh, Tom Cruise had to convince the studio to allow him to do the stunts himself uh, by sacrificing his paycheck and letting him buy the extra insurance and everything. But past that first movie, then he had the clout to just say, if you don't let me do it, I'm not doing the movie. Yeah. <laughs> and that's pretty much how he gets to argue it from here on out. <laughs> and I will say it, it seems like, and there in, you know, Mission Impossible three came out six years later and is a dramatically different film yeah. from Mission Impossible 2. It's also one of my favorites. It was uh, it was the first film that I saw by J.J. Abrams. Mind you, it was one of the only... was one of Isn't the first that... films he directed. Yeah, before that, that, he was one, just uh... doing Felicity, wasn't he? And, you know, writing regarding Henry. Yeah, um, yeah and that's the first one that came out post-Born Identity, so that's why it kind yeah. of resembles born identity. And I, I really like three work. a lot. I ha- I also haven't seen it in about 10 years. So uh, I'm really interested to revisit it. Um, the next one is ghost protocol after that, right? Uh, I so. Yes, I believe so. Ghost and after that is rogue nation, ghost protocol, rogue nation and fallout. Yeah. yeah. Um, yep. So yeah, I really like three. I remember liking four, but sort of being the, uh, less and Im- less impressed yeah. um but yeah i'm excited to go back and revisit three because uh it if i remember correctly um just the pacing and the uh it's a movie that has tension in spades yeah you know a movie that you know unlike this one which was lacking it com- completely <laughs> <laughs> uh all right guys well we're at two hours so uh for put a cap on this but we uh yeah so week one down we'll uh we'll be back next week with uh, mission impossible three and four any final thoughts i disappear <laughs> come on do that do that headfield impression hey 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 <laughs> It's Fat Albert. <laughs> <laughs> James Fatfield or Jan- Hetfield. Yeah. Fatfield? Fatfield. <laughs> <laughs> Fat Hetfield. <laughs> All right, guys. We're getting out of here. This is Tony. This is Todd. This is Byron. And uh, Meg. I didn't want to say my name because I've barely been involved in this since I didn't watch any of the movies. This podcast will self-destruct in five seconds. (laughs) Good night, everybody. I'm talking about the 686 prototypes with the artificial intelligence risk chip. Hmm, 24 hours. (laughs) 